Good evening and welcome. Uh, my name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the AGO. It's my very great delight this evening to have Mark Kingwell as our guest and speaker. Um, there's a wonderful quote about Mark Kingwell. Kingwell is an expert at designing new tools for looking at the familiar in remarkable new ways. That so goes with what we try and do here at the gallery when we try and dig meaning out of the art and, and make it accessible in, in meaningful ways. So I'm very interested to hear your talk myself. Here is his bio. Mark Kingwell is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Toronto and a contributing editor of Harper's Magazine. He is the author of 10 books of political and cultural theory, including the national bestsellers Bet Better Living, 1998, and The World We Want, 2000, Nearest Thing to Heaven, The Empire State Building and American Dreams, 2006, and most recently, Concrete Reveries, Consciousness and the City, 2008. His articles on art, architecture, and design have appeared in, among others, Harper's, the Harvard Design Magazine, the New York Times, Canadian Art, Azure, Form, Perspectives, Byte, Toronto Life, the Globe and Mail, and Queen's Quarterly. Kingwell has lectured extensively in Canada, the US, Europe, and Australia on philosophical subjects. He is the recipient of the Spitz Prize in Political Theory, National Magazine Awards for both essays and columns, and in 2000 was awarded the on an honorary DFA from Nova Scotia College of Art and Design for contributions to theory and criticism. Mark Kingwell. Thank you very much, Jillian, and thank you all uh, for coming. It's, um, it's an honor to be speaking again in this space. Uh, it's been some time since I last did, and uh, a lot has changed since I last did. I was speaking about the millennium, which um, some of you may remember it happened. Uh, not sure what it meant, but it happened. Um, what I wanted to do tonight was talk a little bit about the ideas that are contained in this book, Opening Gambits, but also widen out the discussion as I go. Uh, what I'm not going to offer is a philosophy of art, uh, and for reasons that I'll explain. Instead, some thoughts about what art has to do with philosophy and vice versa. And uh, I'll try to unpack that as I go. But um, first, I wanted to say something about the nature of this book, and um, starting with its title, Opening Gambits. By the way, the covered image you may recognize is a work by Kelly Mark, and I'm going to show you another Kelly Mark image later in uh, the slide presentation. And this series that Kelly did, uh, obviously, is a series of found photographic works. Uh, and what I love about this is the, the whole series taken together is a a series of encounters, really, with um, the street, and especially with the broken normativity of these yellow lines that we see every day of our lives. So it's kind of apposite tonight when everyone's outside fighting traffic, um, <laughs> trying to uh, honor the yellow lines and, and the lights and everything else. Um, but, but what Kelly has done with these works is found places where they, they naturally break. This is just a hiccup in the, uh, the painting truck, uh, which has created this little threshold with a kind of swinging door uh, between two sides of this concrete expanse. And the, the other image of Kelly's uh, I'll speak a bit about later. Um, opening Gambits, the title, I guess I've, I've become a little fond, maybe overfond, of titles that are uh, plural nouns modified by uh, sing singular adjectives. 
Um, Concrete Reveries and Opening Gambits were two titles of mine, both published in 2008. Uh, and you might think, I also published in 2002 a book called Practical Judgments. Um, so maybe I should stop doing that. But uh, why Opening Gambits? And why does Opening Gambits of these books come at the end rather than the beginning, since it's supposed to be opening? Uh, a gambit is, of course, any sort of play or move or series of moves in a game. And we encounter the word especially in games like chess. So uh, if you're a chess player, you know certain kinds of gambits uh, are programmed moves or, or combinations that you deploy under certain circumstances to try and gain advantage, uh, or at least not lose advantage. Uh, an opening gambit in chess is, of course, the first series of moves that you make, and many of the planned combinations are famous named combinations. Uh, so gambits also occur in conversational interchange. A gambit in conversation is a kind of move or play or series of moves that you make on another person in a conversation. Uh, it might be you know, making a move in the pickup sense, but it might just be trying to make contact. So I love this phrase, opening gambits, for its playfulness, uh, its sense of future possibility, and of course its sense of beginning again and again. And uh, I'll return to this theme of being beginners uh, as I go through. Um, the book, just briefly, I wanted to, um, and there will be books outside later if you're interested. Uh, the book is a series of essays that are linked by this notion of play and linked but separated. Um, the first half of the book is a series of essays, interventions about specific artists or uh, schools of art. And then the second half, the back half of the book, is a series of essays mostly metaphilosophical about the nature of thought itself. Uh, Metaphilosophy is the name we give to that kind of disreputable subdiscipline within philosophy where philosophy thinks about what philosophy is. Uh, separating these two halves, these two essays, which were published over the span of a couple of decades, uh, is a series of images, some of which I'm going to show you tonight. And so this, this little signature of coded paper with images is a kind of barrier threshold between the two halves of the book, but also joins them. So as all thresholds, it functions both uh, to separate and to join. And uh, that's why I think focusing on the images is particularly important tonight. Um, the introduction to the book has this title, Philosophy as and of Art. And I want to briefly explain that. Um, it's a, a riff on an essay that was published by the philosopher Arthur Danto in 1985 called Philosophy as and of Literature. And in that essay, Danto, who many of you may know as a philosopher of art, of gifts, was addressing the uh, American Philosophical Association. And in trying to understand the relationship between philosophy and literature, uh, argued essentially a conservative position that literature tells falsehoods while philosophy tells truths. Uh, and I remember reading this essay and being a little bit astonished, as well as disagreeing with it, since Danto is best known to me as the man who, two decades earlier, had published The Art World, the essay called The Art World, uh, which first broke open my understanding of what philosophy of art could be. In The Art World, uh, resp responding approximately to Andy Warhol, Danto had argued that the art world was not a physical place, uh, nor was it even a series of judgments, but instead was a kind of discursive space, 
uh, a conversation, if you like, uh, around certain objects and experiences, not, not limited to objects, but objects and experiences that aroused a certain kind of urge in us to discourse with each other. And that understanding of the art world, I think, is especially apposite uh, and correct. And yet, two decades after that, Danto had defended, not with respect to art, but with respect to literature, a kind of rearguard position. Uh, so what I tried to do in this introduction, and I'm not going to read it, but um, is destabilize that rearguard position and, and kind of bring out again the interesting contingencies in these three words, as and of, which join these two realms. And my suggestion is, is in a way, simply this, that um, philosophy and art are both linked because they are forms of play, discursive play. Um, the discursive element in philosophy is probably obvious since the, the tools that we use, the way we do philosophy, as we say, uh, is, are mostly um, based on words. We write articles, we publish books, we give lectures. Not so obviously in the case of art, but I think the discursive intentions of both realms are the same, and their playfulness at their best is the same. And to use a, another Danto uh, concept, in some of his influential works, uh, especially the essays collected in the book called Beyond the Brillo Box, uh, Danto speaks of what he calls comedies of similarity. Uh, and this is a, a phrase he uses to unpack Warhol and Duchamp and other artists who take f the familiar and render it into works of art, um, not simply by moving it inside a gallery. That's a misunderstanding. That's the kind of uh, reductive institutional theory of art. Uh, but by showing how two things that look the same, maybe even in a sense are the same, are no longer the same if they're entered into different discursive spaces. So a urinal is a urinal if it's in a men's room, a urinal in a gallery is a work of art, potentially, not because it's a different object, but because it's the same object in a different place. Right? And the place is not the institution, but the discursive space which it has now entered, the art world. Likewise, the tomato can. And, and this kind of analysis is familiar to us, uh, but of course was groundbreaking in the 60s and of course even earlier in the 30s. So the comedies of similarity. The comedy is when we mistake one for the other or when we get the joke, that we see that there is something both similar and different at once about this object. And in a sense, comedy is, is maybe not quite the right word. It's an irony of similarity. Right? We see the gap between the sameness and the difference. So I wanted, to, in, in effect, to re-ironize this notion of similarity with philosophy and art, rather than objects being comedies of similarity, how is it that philosophy and art are both similar and, the sa similar and different at the same time? So, um, <clears throat> philosophy, uh, <laughs> I apologize if you've seen this image before, it's just, I like it. Um, philosophy has this destabilizing effect, it, it uh, in the very act of proposing to give you wayfinding, it um, puts you into a, an uneasy position about where you are. Uh, and I think the best art also has this kind of destabilizing or ironizing function. Uh, there's another resonance of irony that I want to pick up on here, and that is uh, one that, that traces back to Kierkegaard, the master ironist. 
who understands irony as uh, a prickly question. In his case, one of his favorite questions was, among the Christians, is there a Christian? Uh, by which he means something like, well, not, you know, are there people who are described or describe themselves as Christians? There's plenty of those. Uh, but among those, is there one who is somehow genuinely a Christian, whatever that might mean? Um, shifting that irony, uh, among the artists, is there an artist? Among the philosophers, is there a philosopher? Uh, these become the guiding questions for the serious playfulness that I try to undertake in this book. Um, two other ideas from uh, two other philosophers just as we go forward, and then I'm just going to show you some works of art. Um, one is from Heidegger, who said famously in The Origin of the Work of Art, the mere object is not the work of art. The mere object is not the work of art. And he plays there, and the, the play works both in English and in German, on the phrase work of art. We tend in everyday discourse to think of work of art as meaning an object, right? We say the work is on the wall, or something like that. Uh, but what Heidegger wants us to remember is that the work of art is an activist call, right? It is the work that art calls us to do, or the work that art does on us. So the work of art is the work performed by and performed on art. Um, work is not reducible to or synonymous with object. And the other um, philosophical notion that I found useful in thinking about this um, consonance or, um, I don't know, dis disconsonance between art and philosophy is the Wittgensteinian idea of family resemblance. Uh, a lot of philosophy of art uh, historically has been tangled up in its own question of defining the essence of a work of art and hence what belongs inside a conceptual boundary and everything else that excluded is excluded on the outside of that boundary. And there is no end to the kinds of disputes that have animated the history of philosophy of art trying to find this essence. Uh, but one thing that, that Wittgenstein does, not just about art, is uh, shows us that this essentialism, conceptual essentialism, is most often, in many cases, a false trail. There is no such essential definition, not even a cluster of qualities or features that we could pick out that separate artworks from all other objects in the world, what Hegel called mere furniture of the world. Uh, instead, art must be reconceived as a family resemblance notion. Uh, that there is, just as in families, there's no single set of features that defines all the members of the family. They don't all have N features. But instead, you know, uncle has two features shared with nephew, who has two features shared with father, who has two features shared with daughter, and so on and so on. A family resemblance concept um, makes more contingent and interestingly unstable the idea of the work of art. So, irony play, the work of art, family resemblance, comedies of similarity. These are some of the ideas going forward um, that I want to have in your minds as I look at some of these works. Um, not all of the works that I'm going to show you this evening are discussed explicitly in opening gambits, but um, I'm going to try to tie this together a little bit. Uh, it's obvious from what I just said, I don't have an essentialist philosophy of art, um, so I don't have an essentialist story to tell you why these works belong together. Uh, I do think there are certain family resemblances here, but I'm not going to try to necessarily nail them down. 
All of them do certainly share a kind of playfulness of the serious sort that I find interesting or, or revelatory. And uh, one of the things that they uh, also share is that I like them all, um, <laughs> obviously. Uh, well, and there's, a couple, there's one exception, which will probably be obvious. Um, yeah, so without further ado. Uh, this, of course, is a work by Gerhard Richter. This is um, 1,024 colors. Uh, start with this work. Um, by the way, I don't know how many of you have seen the, the, the new building and the collections as they're displayed now. Uh, some of the artists I'm going to talk about tonight are represented in the gallery. Um, not all of them. Uh, all of them should be, in my opinion, but some of them are not. Uh, the Richters, there's a little Richter room, which has some quite good Richters. Uh, what I find fascinating about Richter is, is his preoccupation with the medium, which is to say paint itself, and a kind of deconstruction of the very idea of paint. So in this work, um, which finds its place in a tradition of blocks of color deployed on, on the canvas, but here almost uh, taking this to uh, an absurd extent. Um, there are smaller works, by the way, with, with fewer colors, but this is um, my favorite. And uh, you know this, this almost paint chip uh, sample kind of effect. Um, what he's doing, I think, like a lot of the things that he does, I'm going to start and end with a Richter image, by the way, uh, is put into question the very idea of using paint on canvas. And hence, I think, his fascinating combination of representational and abstract works in his very impressive of, of many years. Um, a couple of images, the uh, Fluxus edition flux kits from the mid-60s. Um, I think Fluxus uh, is neglected as, as um, a movement, as a, a collective or loose collective. Um, but I, I, what I love about these works is they're, uh, they're, they're apparent but um, mysterious utilitarian uh, vibe. You know, the suggestion that somehow these kits are for something without actually revealing what tasks they're meant to perform. And uh, um, you may know, by the way, that um, Marshall McLuhan was, was um, preoccupied with Fluxus precisely for this reason, that um, these, these objects, which are really conceptual artworks, but because they're materially based, they create the opportunity of what, what I think of as the conceptual haptic. Um, that is, the, the, uh, the, the kind of the beautiful or um, diverting aesthetic encounter with the actual object is the entry point to the conceptual notion, which is not a specific idea, but instead a kind of confusion, which is um, diverting or revelatory. Um, this is the exception to what I was, uh, not this building. This is, of course, Liebeskind's Jew Jewish Museum in Berlin. Um, the conceptual haptic has to be balanced off by our, our recent experience of what I labeled in an article the monumental conceptual. And uh, I don't mean to demonize Daniel Liebeskind here. He doesn't need me to do that. He can do that himself. Um, but uh, it's, I guess, you know, speaking of irony, it's an irony to be speaking about this in this um, beautiful renovation of an existing building, uh, which works very well both from the inside out and the outside in. Uh, what characterizes monumental conceptual architecture is its preoccupation with silhouette. And here we see in this, the acknowledged masterpiece of the Jewish Museum, Liebeskin at his best, 
Um, maybe less successful is this familiar shape, although I think that's, that's as good as that building gets right there. Um, that is across the street, just at the, the foot of the Park Hyatt. That's how you should experience that building. Uh, or, if not that, that's the, then inside but empty. Uh, once you start putting stuff in that space, uh, it rapidly becomes less pleasing. Um, but here's an example of an architect who sees himself as, as a conceptual artist uh, and both the, um, the, the pitfalls and the possibilities of, of that kind of self-conception. Uh, a very different sort of art, this is James Lahey. Um, and I, I picked this partly because there's an essay about James's work in the book, but also uh, I love his work and uh, he's a friend. Um, he dislikes the comparison to Gerhard Richter, but I think it's inevitable, uh, partly because of, of his command of paint and his very his masterly um, uh, use of paint and, and achievement with brushstroke, but also because of his flirting with the, the fringe between representation and abstraction. And you can see it here where the, um, up here where the, the tulip Right, which is the focus of the representational work, um, shades off into a kind of um, soft focus down here too, and really renders the whole work into an exercise in significant form rather than representation. So the tulip, even though it is in some sense accurately represented, is just the occasion for the achievement in form. Likewise here, um, this is uh, a landscape, Atlantic Ocean, Vero Beach, Florida. You see the paint almost decaying along the bottom of the canvas. Um, a very kind of uh, effective technique, but one we, we certainly see in some works by Richter as well. Um, this is a detail from probably Lahi's most famous series of paintings, these hyper-realistic, um, quite beautiful, and in some cases very large cloud paintings. Uh, he's told me on more than one occasion, this from 2001 as you can see, uh, he keeps getting commissions to paint these because they're so beautiful. People want them in their boardrooms and offices, but he, he's moved on and, and only reluctantly will accept a commission to paint one of those. More, far more interesting to my mind um, is this series of works, and here's a detail from uh, what are called the index abstractions. And what he started doing in the mid-2000s uh, um, was taking paint that had been scraped off of representational works and dumped in buckets, and taking that paint out of the bucket and slapping it onto expanses of canvas and working it into these really, I think the only word for them is found abstractions. Uh, so these, these are, um, the palette of course is, is reflective of whatever the representational work, if you like, at the front of the house was being undertaken. And here at the back of the house, um, the found painting, the salvage painting, creates the opportunity for these new abstractions. Um, David Burke, the Peterborough, Ontario artist, American-born Peterborough, Ontario artist, um, who here are a couple of examples of uh, his late works. What you see in the center there are um, what David called notional landscapes. Um, these are not taken with landscape sketching, but um, are landscapes which are a kind of um, memory of the Kawartha uh, landscape around Peterborough, but also you can see clear echoes there of uh, 17th and 18th century traditional landscape painting. Very distinctive palette, um, this blue 
here, um, cerulean blue, which is found in, in most of Burke's lake paintings. And uh, the, the traditional proportions where the horizon line is found in the lower uh, fifth, usually, of the space. And added to that, what makes them, to me, more interesting than, than just that, although I think they're quite beautiful without that, is um, these uh, um, locking mechanisms. Call, he calls this series Locked in Migration. So uh, surrounded by or, or trapped by frames of brushed steel on the right-hand side, and on this, this side, the left-hand side, a found rusted steel. So salvaged rusted steel from a salvage yard. And um, well, I mean, that's a nice reproduction. It doesn't take me to tell you how beautiful that rust can be um, when it's put into this context. Uh, and you get in a almost you know, cloud-like patterns um, visible here, but also the dripping, um, quite effective use of oxida oxidation, really. Um, the other thing that, that David was well known for, and to some degree criticized for late in his career, was uh, appropriation in art, and a whole series of works that he did uh, joined these conceptual landscapes locked in the steel frames with reproductions of classical works. Um, and I'm not, I'm not entirely certain that they're always successful, but there's something interesting about this juxtaposition of appropriation of um, classical images with his own landscapes, notional landscapes. Um, probably a familiar image, um, Ed Bertinsky. The, uh, I have to tell you quickly a story about this image. Uh, I didn't know when I first saw it that it was by Bertinsky, and I was asked by a magazine editor to write something about this image for a back page spread. And so I talked a bit about what I, what I love, which is in a lot of Bertinsky's, as I've now learned, is, is his um, absolutely brilliant composition. So um, this tractor trailer here abandoned in a way in this almost perfect diamond shape. And then the way the tires kind of build right out to um, in, in waves almost. Uh, and so that's what I wrote about. And then when, when the uh, magazine was published, the image had been cropped. And um, if you're a photographer or any artist out there, you know that um, cropping is uh, not something that you should do. And uh, uh, Ed was very upset about this, but I had to explain to him it wasn't my fault. Uh, it also made what I said, what I had written, make less sense. But anyway, that's, that's the full image as it should appear. And then these uh, probably, again, familiar images uh, of shipbreaking. Uh, this is from the China series. This is workers' housing in Shanghai. And then the interior, the, the way the, the, the pinks and the blues are picked up here. Um, what I think is fascinating, and here's a good example, again, is composition in Bertinsky. And uh, I think it creates a problem for him, an interesting problem for us, but a problem for him uh, insofar as we have to ask ourselves whether he's documenting environmental decay or um, the, the consequences of, of late capitalism, uh, or creating works of art which are meant to be appreciated only aesthetically. I don't think you can actually choose. I don't think you can make a decision about this with respect to his work. And that makes his work, to me, more interesting than ever. Uh, what you see here in this um, CN track number eight from 85, again, is classical composition. So the, the landscape is rendered with the horizon line um, picked up by where the uh, railway line is put into this particular composition. 
just a couple of images. This is from, uh, this is Ken Lum. Um, there's the Kelly Mark I mentioned before. Again, uh, a sort of fractured found piece of photography. Very, I think very evocative. Uh, these are all from a series called Unlearn. This is a work by the uh, Quebecois artist Michel De Bruyne, um, which I really love. I love. I love the fact that these guys are trying to do it. You know, so it, it looks really, I think it's really important to see it in, in conjunction with that one. Because there's the line broken, um, the line which is supposed to be normative, you know, the separating line between two lanes of traffic, which if we didn't observe it would mean a crash every three seconds or whatever. And then of course the same yellow normative line um, here rendered into absurdity, but um, people nevertheless, you know, I'm going to do it if it kills me, I'm going to skate around that line the way it's supposed to go. And then these two, I think, quite beautiful and, and funny works by uh, the Vancouver artist Jermaine Coe, um, Help and Sorry. And of course, what you see here are just artful uh, editing of the sorts of signs you would find at any hardware store. But in the context on the left of a kind of abandoned bureaucrat's desk, um, it's almost like a suicide note or something. Um, and then on the, on the right, on a doorway, which is kind of generic apology for everything I've ever done and ever will do. Um, these are images, now this it especially illustrates the notion of the work of art not being the mere object. These are images from the, uh, I have to call it conceptual installation off-site piece by Iris Hausler called The Legacy of Joseph Wagenbach. And I don't know how many of you may have had the, the privilege of seeing this. What Iris did was um, rent a house in Toronto, downtown Toronto, and create inside it a fiction of an artist who had emigrated from Germany and had become a recluse, a hermit, and created inside the house not only his own works, which are what you see here, some of these um, sculptures and practice sculptures, but also the details of his life. So there's a, a Doc, a detail from one of the sculptures. This is a detail from one of the, the drawers in the kitchen of the house. And what you have to understand is that all of this material was placed there. All of it was collected in order to be historically consistent with the story. And in addition to that, um, when you visited, sorry, when you visited the house, you were taken through on a tour by someone who purported to be a curator from the city of Toronto who had discovered this house after the fictional man's death. And you saw the works and you saw these pieces, material, you saw, um, this is my favorite thing, this, these little labels, which, um, are, which just say municipal archives, <laughs> legacy assessment, and then this um, false signature, which Iris did with her left hand in order to make it look like somebody else's signature, and all of these tiny labels attached to the alleged works. Uh, so this work functioned, first of all, as a kind of experience. Um, maybe not surprisingly, a lot of people, including some quite savvy art world people, were completely taken in by the fictional frame of the work. And then there was a planned reveal of the backstory and much anger. Uh, and my, my favorite, this may be my favorite single National Post headline ever. On the front page of the National Post when this, when this happened, um, the, the headline was, Reclusive Downtown Artist Revealed as a Hoax. <laughs> it doesn't even parse, you know? It doesn't, doesn't even 
quite make sense. Um, but the idea that, that people had been hoaxed or fooled then became the focus uh, of the, the controversy. And I think, in fact, that's part of the work of art, the, of this particular work, was the anger that people had at what they felt was a hoax. Um, but it, it was, if, if anything, you have to say it was an, an incredibly elaborate and uh, well-executed hoax. I think even to call it a hoax is, is to get it wrong. I think it is an astonishing piece of conceptual art, uh, which was executed with great verve and grace. Um, moving on to a different sort of work, um, a series of images by the two-person uh, Toronto-based collective Blue Republic. And um, this is from a series called uh, Nostalgia for the Present, uh, which is in, in some ways a retrospective of um, works that Blue Republic has been working on for some time. Um, what fascinates me about this is not just the use here of ordinary materials. You can see the standard aluminum hardware store ladder there on the right and a, a bunch of found objects. Um, I'll show you more of those in a minute on the left. Um, but also that every time these works are installed, they're different. So the work is an evolving work. And this pregnant phrase, nostalgia for the present, uh, puts us into a kind of a poignant relationship with these otherwise banal materials of everyday life. The ladder, the Lego pieces, um, the, the bits and uh, pieces of stuff that we find in, in life. Like here, this is the um, installation at the Koffler Gallery. Is that right, Anna? Is that the Koffler? Yes? Okay. Um, I'm going to show you a different installation later. But you see here some of the kinds of materials that go into this work. Uh, pieces of cardboard, uh, tape on the wall, um, the, the um, bifurcating repeated image of this kind of uh, tree, uh, which is found throughout. You see it again over here balloons and globes, um, toy soldiers, plastic models, garbage. Uh, what this creates, in effect, is a kind of um, cityscape, almost, in miniature. Uh, and here's a, an even, perhaps an even more evocative. This is the McLaren installation in Barrie. And here are the, um, many of the same materials. It's the same work, in a sense, but um, also not in a sense, because it's different. And here are the styrofoam at the back creates a kind of uh, beautiful distant skyline. And then, then you get these, again, architectural or, or urban echoey constellations of wood blocks, uh, cardboard, pots and pans here, oops, um, the inflatable mattress, and so on. Um, my favorite, there's another view, some of these wood divots over here creating almost a kind of um, clear-cut forest effect, and so on. My favorite detail, this found toy soldier glued to a balloon, suspended somewhere in this notional city. Um, there's another image from a different part of the same installation. And then an update of the, um, the Lego. Uh, as this work has evolved, the Lego has become, it's almost as if it started over here as a kind of viral infection in the gallery and traced its way across the floor and then started blooming into new colors and new shapes as it colonized the aluminum ladder. Um, very different kind of works now. Uh, these are a series, this is a series of images by the Kamloops, British Columbia, now Toronto artist, Lisa Clapstock. And here I return to the notion of threshold. And in fact, this is from a series called Threshold. Um, 
in a sense, again, these are, are found works, but the composition is everything. Uh, these works are created by Lisa prowling the, the alleys of Toronto and taking photographs through fences um, from the alley into the backyards of various houses. Uh, and so you get immediately a kind of invasion of private space from public space. Uh, the alley, of course, is a kind of um, debatable space anyway. It's, it's the place where, uh, when I was a kid, we loved to play in the alley. It was the place to play because it was somehow a hidden space or a subconscious space. Um, the works perform especially, I'm not sure this image is really picking it up, the, what's picked out through the gap in the fence is rendered in high focus and then the, the fence itself goes into off focus and creates again almost a kind of um, representational abstraction. Uh, interesting combination of detail and just form and color. And you'll see this as I show you a few of these. That's my favorite. And now this is a series more recently from the same artist, Lisa Klapstock, called Living Room. And um, to some degree, a similar sort of intervention, uh, prowling the alleys and finding discarded furniture and inhabiting the furniture or the found living room. But of course, as you can see, in the hazmat suit uh, and with the, the um, camera's plunger held in hand. And there's another version of that same series, which I, as you can see, uh, like so much, I wanted to use it on a, a book cover. And then a final work um, from Lisa, uh, where a series now where figures are found in various kinds of landscapes, usually natural, but this one, because I, it's urban, I like it. Um, this, this vast stairway and the, the figure appearing and disappearing like that. Um, appearing and disappearing is another theme that I find diverting and, and playful. Um, this is a work that some of you probably know. This is by Robin Collier and uh, it's from a series that he did where uh, in photographs, um, not, not unlike in a sense the Germain co-works we saw earlier, um, certain things are eliminated in order to create uh, an awareness of what is not there, the, the um, presence of that which is absent. And here, of course, the Tim Horton sign, the familiar iconic sign, um, beautifully captured here in a, in a moment that you know any artist dreams of where the anoraks of the, the two pedestrians exactly match the color tone of the sign of the Tim Hortons donut franchise and of course exactly complement that beautiful North York sky which is captured there the far end of Young Street. I'm still st sticking with the urban and this is kind of one of the um, sub-themes that I wanted to bring out is the way that um, art has of, of uh, repositioning us within our own spaces. And since most of us in this country, the vast majority, live in cities, the engagement with the urban is especially interesting to me, um, as you can see from the works I've just shown you. This is a painting by the Midland, Ontario artist John Hartman. And um, this rendering of Montreal from uh, a, a kind of imagined aerial perspective, Hartman has done a series of these beautiful large-scale oil paintings many of them using this same kind of sanguinary palette. Um, but it's especially effective here with Montreal. You see Montreal in, the, in here, the, um, what's that called? Not the observatory, but the oratory there. Um, and flowing down, of course, through the university and the city center and into the harbor. 
um, but also to show us that, that cities, though we can experience them at street level in the way that the Kelly Mark works do, uh, also can be seen or imagined from this larger perspective where they, they reveal their organic negotiation with, with the natural surround. So the way the city here shapes itself around the mountain and the water. And I think the palette really brings this out, the kind of beating heart of a living city. <clears throat> a very different sort of intervention, I'm going to show you these just because I love them. This, these are a series of, of little found works by, um, sort of found works, by um, the graphic designer and artist Christopher Neiman, who writes a blog um, or posts a blog for the New York Times. And uh, he did this series when he was uh, living in Europe and missing New York and watched his son playing with Lego. And uh, I like the fact that Lego comes up more than once. So the, the Lego was colonizing the aluminum ladder in Blue Republic. Here, Lego, um, in its simplicity, gives us these opportunities. So there's these, I think, beautifully um, clever renderings of things. And the, the, the shapes of Manhattan and Long Island, that's Central Park, of course, right there, the green block. Um, the Metro card, which is exactly right, the three tones of the three standard seat blocks on a subway car in the New York system. Um, these are even better. This, this version of the Whitney and this one of the New Museum, I just, and that's just a stroke of genius right there, that single piece of Lego, which is seen as the um, Madison Square Garden. I'm not sure that's New York's worst building, by the way, but everybody's entitled to their opinion. Um, these ones, those of you who, who know Manhattan, so easy to can get confused between the, the free and the off-duty lights on the top of the cabs, since we're used to cabs that are either on or off. Um, and then this is perhaps my favorite. That's uh, <laughs> what happens on the street. And then um, this is nice, too. And uh, if that doesn't make sense to you, if you don't remember what the Flatiron Building looks like, there's the Flatiron Building. So um, that's why the northern facade is just that, and the eastern facade is that, and so on. Um, as was mentioned, I, I wrote a book about the Empire State Building. And uh, just keeping with that, I wanted to show this image just because I love this cover. Um, the disappearing building, um, the theme of my analysis of the Empire State was that um, as it becomes more monumental, it becomes more invisible. And uh, so, though for half a century it was the tallest building in New York and indeed the world, um, it becomes harder and harder to see it. And I think this is one of the things that we look to art to do, which is to, to help reveal to us the things that um, tend to recede into invisibility, either because so familiar or so banal that we just pass them by. Um, and I love this image, which picks out the, um, the building by having most of it hidden. This image, by the way, I have to tell you, uh, I had a kind of dream memory of there being such an image. And when I talked to the designer who was doing the cover, I said, I don't know if this image exists. I can't find it. But I have this image of, of the top of the building only being visible. And she managed to find it. And it turns out, I think, to be the perfect image. Uh, on the right, just a whimsical Empire State Building constructed of Tide bottles. Uh, one of the things that happens to iconic buildings, not just buildings, but iconic buildings certainly, is that they become uh, their own kind of metric. So um, there's a whole 
list of things, I have a chapter, part of a chapter on this, of how many of certain things will fit into the Empire State Building. So how many Big Macs could fill the Empire State Building or how many times you'd have to climb the Empire State Building to um, span the distance from the Earth to the Moon and so on. So the Empire State Building becomes a bit like um, uh, the, I forget who it was who coined the, the idea of the Helen uh, as a standard of beauty. So um, one Helen, of course, is equal to a thousand ships. So that's um, a beautiful person. Um, anybody who is less than one Helen has a certain number of mini Helens. Uh, and, you know, you can do the math. Um, we could also, to fold it back into Warhol, the, uh, the Warhol is the unit, of course, of 15 minutes of fame. So you can do the math there, too. If someone's famous for a few years, then it's N Warhols. Um, anyway. And this, the um, famous Riesendorp image, I just wanted to show those two buildings, uh, the, the Chrysler and the Empire State going to bed together. Um, yeah. Uh, this is an image by, um, again, it's a book cover or part of a book cover, but by the uh, Toronto photographer Jeffrey James. And again, composition is everything. Uh, you see here an image from one of the Ville Nouvelle developments in the Banlieue of Paris. And the way Jeffrey has found here a kind of uh, gargantuan doorway and its own associated threshold in this suburban development and the way that this composition picks out these Romanesque, or sort of Romanesque arch shapes, not real arches, they're just um, recessions in the, in the concrete wall, and then these kind of Nouvelle-esque, um, futuristic doodads up here, and of course, the people wandering in their alienation down there. Um, finally, just a few images of, of works that I, maybe by artists you don't know, and this is what I wanted to end with. Um, these are not yet household names, and I don't know if they ever will be, but um, just some works that I think pick up on a few, at least, of the themes. Like I said, I'm not going to try to tie it together, but just because I like them. Um, Andrew Morrow, uh, Andrew Morrow again, and you see here, I think, these um, kooky, uh, bizarre, almost science fictional, um, representational pieces, but again, um, shading off into uh, abstraction or at least distortion. Margot Williamson, who um, is also, I think, working this same interesting vein in paint where there is representation, but it's not representational in the sense of presenting the image as an image, but instead a kind of distortion or destabilization of the image. Um, Olya Moshenko, who works in fine line drawings, and this is not her best, but um, often with proliferating detail across large um, expanses of, of white space, of tiny figures sometimes, or tiny uh, pieces of equipment. Again, this, this in a way takes me back to the flux kits. Um, there's activity and apparent utility, but no rendering into sense or project, just a sense of, of energy and the great precision of her line. Um, Kent Monkman, who is probably a household name by now, um, I show you these images because you may not have seen these yet. They're not yet as well known as, as some of his others. And um, this is from a series that he did uh, picking up on themes of athleticism and dandyism in uh, uh, Native American, Native Canadian uh, art and history. And of course, typical, in a sense, typical Monkman um, bodies and packages. Um, but they, they discarded lacrosse rackets here. They've got other things to think about. Um, here are some of the dandies 
these are watercolors, beautiful watercolors. Uh, there were studies for this dandy series. Uh, what Monkman found were um, historical uh, documents that showed that what we would call dandies, who may or may not have been um, homosexual, but probably were, uh, were often uh, esteemed members of certain, um, especially Western Plains nations, and uh, would, would dress elaborately, and that was their beauty, in a sense, was their contribution to the social organization and, and advancement of the nation. Uh, and then he updates this, of course, with what they wouldn't have had, which is high-heeled boots and, and ruffs and, um, yeah. So there's another one of those. I love those fringed high-heeled boots. You can't get better than that. Um, Joanne Todd, this is from a series called Vanity Fair, uh, where she rendered certain Canadian celebrities or, or sort of celebrities as characters from Thackeray's Vanity Fair. And that's, uh, as you may recognize, uh, the Globe and Mail columnist Leah McLaren as Becky Sharp from Vanity Fair. Uh, and then finally two um, quite haunting works by um, Shelley Adler uh, who is returning in a way to the, the paint that I started out with and that's why I'm turning back eventually to the Richter as you'll see. Um, Adler's works have this kind of spectral quality. I love the way she um, paints portraits which are not just portraits. Uh, so that they, they become haunting, and hence then the return there to the Richter. I think um, this, this kind of glam image, um, which is part of Richter's series of paintings based on photographs, but the way he distorts the photograph, and you see here, especially just in a neat detail, um, the, the line of the riser of the, or the top of the riser of the step is actually coming through the hips on the dress and the palette. Um, is such that, that that kind of destabilization is, is made possible. So um, thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>